Um, I think enough adults have returned now. We'll, we'll give it a go. Um, so our, our reading today is going to be from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Um, but first, we're just going to pray uh, very briefly. Lord God, thank you that we can read your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you promise that your word does not return to you void. We pray, Lord, that um, as we read your word and as we study your word today, that it will have an impact on our hearts. Holy Spirit, please, um, you know, you say that you cut through bone and marrow. Lord, please cut through into our hearts and speak to us what you want to say through this passage so that we'll be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So now, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, which is on page one, sorry, 1,132 in the church Bible. <coughs> okay. Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everyone well? Who was here yesterday for the card making, card writing,
cake-eating breakfast. Wasn't it great to be together? Uh, writing cards to our local community, writing cards to people down in the Heatons, people here in Reddish. We're just praying that through that, many people will come to our uh, carol services over the coming uh, season. Guess what today is? 26, good guess. Any other answers? It's the start of Advent. Oh, gosh. It's the start of Advent. And over the whole of Advent, we're going to be exploring this one idea of how Jesus is the true and greater gift. And each week, we're going to do that by looking at a different theme together. So over the Advent period, we're not going to be working our way through a particular book. We're going to look at different themes And through those themes, when we put them all together, we're going to see how Jesus is the true and better gift. Advent's been around for quite a while. The first time that Advent is recorded in history is in 380 AD. Since then, Christians every year have been practicing Advent. And Advent in history is very different to Advent today. So let me just try and explain some of the differences. Advent today is primarily about funny little box kind of uh, windows that you open and you get a chocolate. Yeah? That's often what happens today. Historically, for Christians, Advent has two focuses. The first focus for many Christians over the last 2,000 years when they've practiced Advent has been turning backwards in history and they've been thinking about the birth and then the life and then the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. So it's been a backwards look to this special moment when the king of the universe came to a back of beyond place I'm not going to say any places like Bolton. Back of beyond place. And through that, the world has never been the same again. The angels sang about it. The magi came and were stunned and in awe at it. And the shepherds came and they rejoiced over it. They They focused on that moment in history. However, Advent also has a second element to it, historically. And the second element was to look to the future, to the culmination of history, when Christ will return and make all things new. And so Advent has this kind of weird aspect to it. It's like you're reading a history book, and at the same time, it's like you're longing for your birthday. The moment when everything gets revealed. And that's how Advent should work. And so really over these coming weeks, what we want to try and do is to help each of us here simultaneously look back in time 2,000 years ago and then to long for the future when Christ will return. And so our hearts should be filled with gladness at what Christ has already done and our hearts should be filled with longing for what Christ will do when he returns. And that's our dream over the next few weeks. So in January, when you've all had your roast dinners and plenty of Christmas pudding, come and speak to me and tell me how well we've done at those two aspects of Advent. How does that sound? Sound okay? Good. There's a genre of film that I absolutely 
love. And this genre of film is probably best known by the 1999 famous film, The Matrix. Forget the remakes, think about the original one. However, this particular genre of film has many films that sit within this category. Let me give you some others. There's the 1997 Michael Douglas movie, The Game. There's also the 1998 Jim Carrey film, The Truman Show. And then there's the 2005 movie starring Ewan McGregor, maybe we can put the slide up, Ewan McGregor called The Island. What do all of these films have in common? All of these films are dystopian, and all of these films basically have this process, and the tension of the film is where truth leaks out. Right at the start, you're not quite sure what is true and what is false. And all the way through the film, the tension is built as truth is leaking out to the audience. Let me give you an example. For those of you who have not... Has everyone seen this film? Okay, you know what you're doing this afternoon. Okay, Netflix, go and find it. It's a brilliant film. Basically, what happens in this film is that all of the characters in white are basically living in this world where unbeknown to them, they are part of a massive human organ factory. They're about to be dissected for very rich people so that these very rich people can have new hearts, new livers and new bits and pieces. But in order to pacify all of these people, they're told a fable, they're told a lie. And Ewan McGregor starts to kind of work out that something's not quite right here. Truth, like a leaky tap, is leaking into his, into his brain. And throughout the course of the film, this is what starts to happen. I'm not going to give any more of the film away. Go and watch it. It's a brilliant film. Friends, Romans 5 is just like any one of these films. Romans 5 paints for us a terribly horrible dystopian picture of the reality of the human condition. And then into that, Paul drops this glorious good news of a rescuer who has come to rescue people like you and I. And so today what I want to do is just take a few of the verses from Romans 5 and I want to try and show each one of us here why Jesus is the true and the better rescuer. That's the goal for this morning. Why Jesus, of all of the rescuers that this world has ever seen, of all of the promises of rescue that this world has ever made, Jesus is the true and the better rescuer. How does that sound? Sound okay? Let's read a few verses together. Verse 18 and 19. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Friends, I'm going to use my square brackets at this moment, okay? Terrible, terrible news. Close square brackets. So also one righteous act 
resulted in justification and life for all people. Open square brackets. Dance, dance some more. This is the good news of the gospel. Close square brackets. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Here in these verses, it's like condensed milk. How many of you remember buying condensed milk? Yeah? You take like, I don't know how much milk, and you boil it down, and you boil it down, and then you add loads and loads of sugar, and then you put it into a tin about this big, and you sell it for a lot of money. Okay? This is basically what these verses are. It's taking the gospel, and it's condensing it down, and condensing it down, and condensing it down, and then it's giving it to us so that simply we can understand the glory and the wonder of the gospel. And we get it here in two verses. Because what the Apostle Paul here is doing in this whole section is he's wanting us to make these connections between Adam way back in the Garden of Eden and then the second Adam who is Jesus. And he's wanting us to make these comparisons to compare and contrast them and see the difference between these two people. And that's what he's doing. He's showing us that through the trespass, the deliberate act of Adam, willful act to take from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil the terrible, devastating consequences are unleashed on all of humanity. That's what he's wanting us to see. How many of you know the story of Pandora? Maybe we can put the next slide up. The story of Pandora is just a myth, but it's really helpful for us at this point. The myth of Pandora is that she was given this box and was told never to open this box. And guess what she did? She opened the box. And as she opened the box, terrible consequences erupted. And she couldn't shut the box. She wanted to shut the box because she wanted to contain the evil consequences. Friends, that's a glorious picture of what happened here in Romans 5. Paul is saying, look back to the Garden of Eden. As Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good of evil... Terrible consequences broke out into humanity. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for all subsequent generations. Adam's original sin had unfathomable consequences. He repeats this in the very next sentence when he says that basically um, as a representative head, Adam's disobedience led to the sin of many. This is the picture that we're getting. All of this leads to the bleakest, not midwinter, but depressing, dystopian, matrix-like, island-like picture where all of humanity are in big trouble. This is the bleakness of the good news. And we must keep retelling the bleakness of the good news. Otherwise, the glory of the good news will not be glorious to us. It will become mundane. Ephesians 2 expands the condensed milk of the gospel a little bit. 
In, verse, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The Apostle Paul really does know how to strike blues chords, doesn't he? He knows how to hit the depressive notes. But he's doing it very deliberately because he's wanting us to understand the devastating effects of sin upon humanity so that we might understand the grace of God and how it liberates us. Jesus is the true and better rescuer. And this chapter is going to show us how there are other means or things that might present themselves as rescuers, but none of of them will truly rescue. Friends, since the Garden of Eden, humanity has had one broken record track, and it goes like this. Trespass and disobedience. Trespass and disobedience. And like a broken record that just keeps getting stuck, that's been the story of humanity. And as a result of that, we've needed a rescuer. We've needed somebody who will be able to take that pin up and move it a little bit further along so we can play some other tracks other than just trespass and obedience. And Paul uses this wonderful technique here in Uh, Romans 5 it's very similar to that if you read the Psalms there's this approach in the Psalms called parallelism where you you kind of splice together different ideas so you can see the contrast and that's what the Apostle Paul here is doing he's wanting us to see Adam in the Garden of Eden and then Jesus at the cross and he's wanting us to see the stark contrast between them and the implications of their work and he shows us Where Adam's trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Jesus' one righteous act. Did you notice that in the text? One righteous act. I.e., when Jesus went to the cross, in that moment when he went to the cross, it resulted in justification and true life that has had global implications. Friends, this is glorious news. This is the difference between Adam in the Garden of Eden and Adam on the cross. This is the difference that we're starting to see. And then he does it again in the very next um, verse. Jesus' obedience. From the moment that Jesus was born, he lived with uh, Joseph and Mary and he followed their ways as his like, earthly parents. And then he lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when everything in him was wanting to move away from the cross, and he says, but not my will, but yours be done. In that obedience, Jesus overcame the powers of sin and darkness and in his obedience it's led to the righteousness of many this is the good news this is why jesus is the true and the better rescuer however these verses also contain some other pretty explosive ideas and so i just want us to take a little bit longer to look at them together because i think if we dive in just a little bit deeper i'm hoping 
that your singing of carols this Christmas will be even more joy-filled as you remember what Christ has done for you. So let's look at these verses a little bit more. And the next slide, maybe we can go to the justification of many. Notice what Paul says here in verse um, 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. I want us to spend just a few minutes thinking about an idea that honestly, if we get hold of this as Christians, we should at least smile at least half of the time because it's just so sublime. And honestly, I'm, I'm like hedging my bets here. I think maybe 50% of Christians live their whole lives and they never fully understand this. And so they're never fully able to be glad in God. These verses are all about what John Murray, the great theologian, described as the centerpiece of salvation theology. And it's this, union with Christ. These verses make no sense unless in our minds we're able to understand what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be united with Christ? All of this text is about the radical transformation that takes place when Christians are put together, united with, stuck to, glued together with, like woven together with Christ. That's what these verses are all about. You see, one of the dangers, particularly with Christmas, particularly when we start using words like salvation, is that we see it as something separate from Jesus. We see it as a theology of salvation. But actually, these verses show us that salvation is our lives being connected to, placed in, alongside, glued to Christ, and we receive all of the benefits of Christ. To be united with Christ means that we receive all that Christ has accomplished. How can an unholy people stand before a holy God? Answer, we are united to the justified one. We are united with the righteous one. This is the language of verse 18 to 20. How can we stand before a holy God? Answer, we can't, but Christ can. And so we are united with Christ. And as we are united with Christ, we receive all that he has accomplished for us. That's why when we, in 2024, in the autumn term, in September, when we start a monster series that might go on for 13 years on John's Gospel, you will notice again and again that when Jesus is speaking about the work of conversion and what it means to be a Christian, he chooses again and again organic relational language to describe salvation. Let me give you an example. You are the branches. I am the vine. He's using organic language there to describe a relationship between those who are saved and those who are the sa he who is the savior. Where does the life flow from? The vine. 
We receive the life that pulsates from the vine into the branches. This is the organic relationship of Christianity. How can unholy people stand before a holy God? Because the vine is full of the righteousness of God. And where does it flow into? The branches. How can people who have no legal right to stand before a holy God stand before a holy God? Because the vine is justified. And the vine is able to stand before a holy God. And so it pulsates through and flows through into God's people. Friends, this is Christianity. This is what it means to be united with Christ. Every time you read in the New Testament where it says in Christ, this is what you need to be thinking about. Friends, if we don't think this way, a subtle moralism will creep into our Christianity. A subtle moralism that will eat away at our souls, that will say that somehow we have to live and perform before God. Where this passage is showing us that our righteousness has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the second Adam. His name is Jesus. That's why he's the true and better rescuer. Maybe you think this all sounds rather modern. Adam's making up some modern things. Well, let me take you back to the early church fathers. Arrhenus, Athanasius, Augustine, Cyril of Alexandra. All of them describe salvation in this same way. To be saved, you participate in the life of Jesus that Jesus has with his father. That's how they describe salvation. So when we say somebody's become a Christian, what we're saying is that they are now so united with Jesus that everything that Jesus has with his father, we receive gloriously. Maybe you're thinking, gosh, that sounds weird. Listen to John Calvin. I think we've even got this quote. Here we go. I thought that was nay, by the way, until I realized it wasn't by the beard. This is what John Calvin said. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore... To share in what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. When did that take place? At Christmas. This is why Christmas matters so much. Christ became human. Christ became human. He took on human flesh. Dwell within us. For as I have said... All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Friends, Christianity is all about this wonderful truth that when you become a Christian, you are united, stuck together. I don't know the language to describe it. Glued together, welded together with Christ. Let me paint you another picture to help you. Imagine the classic fairy tale. There's the rich prince and there's the Cinderella character. And at the end of the story, they get married. Their lives are woven together and Cinderella receives all of the treasure of the prince. How? 
through being united in marriage. This is the same idea as Christianity, that we are united with Christ and we receive all that he has for us. This should make you smile. Because this deals a death blow to religion. It deals a death blow to any form of moralism. It deals a death blow to any form of performance-based religion where we've got to somehow achieve some kind of standard. Let me give you an example. Countless times as I've sat with people considering baptism, this is what they've said to me. They've said, I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I'm not sure that I've like, reached a, a standard yet. Friends, that's not the grace of God. The grace of God is you reached your standard. It was called object of wrath. What we received was Christ's unbelievable grace into our lives. And we received it by faith alone. How can you be ready for that? We are never ready for that. It's pure grace flowing into our lives. And so we're baptized in many ways as a sign of simple gratitude and like stunned amazement at what Christ has done for us. Look what he's done. However, there's a question that I want us to just dig a little bit deeper on this. And maybe we can go to the next slide. Law and Grace, as soon as we start talking in this way about union with Christ, not union with Adam, there is a question that everyone starts to ask and it's this. Well, what about the law? Surely the law can help. It must be able to help. Come on, Adam. The Bible is filled with law. I mean, there's all those books of the Old Testament I never read because they're just too depressing. But they seem to all be filled with law. Right? So what, how do we handle the law when it comes to understanding Jesus as our rescuer? Verse 20 answers this question for us. And honestly, if you've got a Bible, you should underline verse 20. And in the margin, you should write, yikes, or gulp, or that's rather startling. Verse 20. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase. Let me say that again. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. For anyone who's read Romans, you'll know that the law's already been dissected before. And in 3.20, we're told that the law helps us to become conscious of sin. So think about this like a journey, okay? First encounters with the law, suddenly we're becoming sensitized to the fact that, gosh, there is right and wrong. And it's helping us to navigate the world and seeing right and wrong. But here in chapter 5, we're actually shown that basically the law leads to the place where sin reaches its zenith. Sin reaches its maturity. Sin reaches its full capacity within the human heart. John Piper put it like this. Next slide. Oh, here we go. So, I take it to mean that one crucial function of the law is to turn our original sin 
into actual transgressions of specific commandments. First, we are guilty in Adam and sinful by nature. And then the law confronts us with the specific will of God. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cover. And the effects is that it turns sinful nature into specific sinful acts of transgressions. One writer said it well, the law makes little Adams of us all. So really, you could say Romans 5 is not about two Adams. It's about millions of Adams. There's the first Adam. There's the second Adam. And then there's the rest of us who are all mini Adams. And the law's job is to bring to our attention the full capacity that each one of us in this room has for sin. And shows us that. Let me give you an example. Maybe we can go to the next slide. When we were in Peterborough, we had a guy in our church and he was a hoarder. Now, he wasn't somebody who just collected F1 magazines on a tabletop. It's not that kind of hoarding. He wasn't even somebody like me who maybe buys one too many books a year. Not that kind of hoarding. I went in his house a few times. No one had been upstairs in his house for decades because you couldn't get upstairs. He didn't have a bed. He had an armchair that was navigated by climbing over, under, through things, things just everywhere. He made it to the front page of the Peterborough local paper because his garden was about nine foot high, full of wood, and it caught on fire. It was a pretty impressive bonfire. His kitchen was an absolute death trap in that he had saved up literally decades of newspapers and he thought that the best place of storing them was by the stove. So they were literally piled up around the stove. Friends, that is a picture of what the law does. It shows us the full implications of our sinful nature when it reaches its zenith. When the implications of how our heart longs after other things reach its full zenith, suddenly you look and go, gosh, I'm a sin hoarder. My life is just filled with sin. Everywhere I look, there is sin in my life. Every nook and cranny of my life is full of sin. Who will rescue me from this? Great question to ask that's the goal of the law to show us our need our need of a savior to show us the full implications of our sin to show us the full zenith of our sin where it will ultimately reach that our lives will just get so full up of sin that there will be no place for us to sit no place for us to sleep no place for us to cook all of our lives will just get overtaken by sin and in that place we'll cry out who will rescue us Who will rescue us? And this is where the Apostle Paul's bad news, dystopian picture turns into good news. Because at this darkest place, the Apostle Paul shows us there is one who is a rescuer. And his name is Jesus. He is the true rescuer. But notice how he does it. I want you to see how he does this. He shows us that Jesus is the rescuer, but he does it by, maybe we can go to the next slide using some really quite wonderful words. Super extravagant 
grace. Not measly grace. Not wartime ration grace. But extravagant grace. That's the language that he uses again and again throughout this whole section. He's pointing us to see that grace supersedes, out trumps the works of sin dramatically. And he wants us to see this. You see, sin, like a hoarder's house, just gets filled up more and more with the works of sin until there's no space left. But Paul says, I want you to understand, even in that consequence, there is a type of grace that is more propelling, more glorious than that. Extravagant grace. One commentator put it like this. The apostle Wax is almost ecstatic as he revels in the superlative excellence of the divine overruling that makes sin serve a gracious purpose. As soon as we've realized, oh my gosh, look at our lives. Look at the mess we've made. Look at the hoarder's house of sin that we've made. Suddenly we see the grace of God and we are stunned at the lavish and extravagant grace set before us. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a glorious picture. Look at the consequences of sin. Look at the consequences. But now look at what Christ has done and look where it leads to this wonderful, extravagant, undeserved picture of salvation and rescue. And we receive it by grace. You see, in this whole section, sin and death are almost personified in the language that Paul uses. It's almost like he's giving them personality and sin is like the king and death is like his hatchet man. And yet what we see through these verses as we work our way through these verses is that ultimately they're fake. They're not real. That Christ is the true king and Christ has come and triumphed over sin, triumphed over death. And how does he do it? Through grace. Extravagant, undeserved, unmerited favour on sin hoarders like you. And me. That's how he does it. He walks into your house that's filled to the absolute rafters of sin. And he doesn't mock and he doesn't say, well, that's going to take you a while to clean up. Hope that goes well. In his extravagant grace, he rescues us from this house of sin and he brings us into his house of grace. That's the transfer that takes place. We belong to him. We are now in him. He takes us out of our sin house into the house of grace. Why is Jesus the true and better rescuer? The answer is this. The law could never rescue. It was never intended to. It was never intended to. Only the perfect Son of God, who came in human flesh, was born in a manger, walked on planet Earth, became fully human, 
and then died in our place so that we could then become in Christ and receive all of his righteous benefits. He's the only one who could rescue us. And he does it through extravagant grace. What does extravagant grace mean? It means this. If when you're hearing me say this, you say, why would he do that for me? You're starting to understand grace. Because the answer is, there is nothing in you that deserves his grace. And yet he lavishes it on you anyway. He lavishes it on you anyway. Friends, this has so much practical application for Christmas. Okay, think about Christmas. Often at Christmas, national newspapers, they like to make comparisons between global religions. They like to say, well, this is the Christian festival compared to a Hindu festival or compared to the Muslim festival. And so they like to make these superficial comparisons between global religions. Friends, I want you to understand it is impossible to compare Christianity with any other global religion. Impossible. And this is the reason why. At the heart of Christianity is not an idea It's a person. His name is Jesus. He's the perfect sacrifice. And it's his extravagant grace that means that we who have filled up the houses of our lives with sin can come into his house of grace freely and gladly. And that cannot be compared with other religions. There's no comparative with that. Friends, that's why other forms of Christian sects, the whole issue turns on who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he the true and living rescuer? Is he the true son of God or not who has come in human flesh, died for us, then risen again or not? This Advent, as we start these series of reflections... I want you to consider deeply Christ, the true and better rescuer. Any form of religious moralism will fail because it won't deal with the core issue, which is a house filled to overflowing like the hoarder's house with sin. That's the issue. And the only thing that will resolve that is Christ's gracious invitation to come and join him in himself, in Christ, in his righteousness, in his justice, so that we might stand before a holy God. To know the true and better rescuer is to be united with him. This is the great Advent theme. This is the great Advent theme, that Christ has come that we might know him and then be united with him in life everlasting. Amen. Why don't you stand? What is the response to Romans chapter 5? I think there are a number of responses. The first is 
I think it should lead each of us in this room to a deep sense of gratitude. Gratitude. Jesus, why would you do this for me? Why? There is, as Spurgeon said, he could never comprehend why the Lord would love him because there was nothing in him lovable. And yet that shines even, bright, even brighter on the grace of God. So the first response is gratitude. I think the second response is a recognition that this is also a call to a life of fidelity. We belong to Christ now. We live in Christ now. We are his and so one of the calls of Advent is, in all the shiny lights of this world, there's one who has saved me, and I want my life to be totally his. And so I want to give myself afresh to him. Finally, as we consider Jesus as the true and better rescuer, it should lead to gladness in our hearts. Honestly, friends, we should be happy people. Happy happy in what Christ has done for us. Even though our lives might be a mess, like all the other things in our lives can be a mess, but look what Christ has done for us. We should be happy people. When we gaze and then gaze again and then gaze again at what Jesus has done, he came to a manger, lived the perfect obedient life, died in our place, rose victorious is now seated on the throne of heaven no and no one will ever take his throne from him he is the everlasting king he sits on the throne one day he will return make all things new and he is your god we should be glad people and so i just want to give you a few moments to respond where do you need to respond this morning just take a few moments in your heart to respond and then we'll pray together Father, we thank you at this start of Advent that we can look back and then we can look forward. And as people trapped between, we can look back with gratitude to Jesus, the great rescuer. We can look forward to Jesus, the one who will make all things new. We can look back seeing that our a house of hoarded sin has been replaced by a house of grace. We are now in Christ. And we receive all of the benefits that Christ has. Righteousness. Justification. Life. Everlasting life. 
all ours because of what Christ has done for us. So we pray this Advent, Lord, as we consider what Jesus has done, let our hearts be glad. Let us be people who are happy in God, happy in what you've accomplished for us, glad in what you've accomplished for us. Lord, stir our hearts to joy. We pray this Advent. And Father, we pray as well. Thank you that you've saved us from moralism. Thank you that you've saved us from trying to perform to earn your favor. Thank you that we are children of grace. Extravagant, lavish grace that you have poured out into our lives in Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to sing together.